0: I would like to begin this podcast by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we record and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. All opinions and discussions on the podcast are purely individual experience, so please consult a doctor or medical professional for more information. Welcome to the Shake It Up show, a podcast in partnership with Shake It Up Australia Foundation for Parkinson's Research, where we speak to people whose lives have been impacted by Parkinson's disease and hear their stories. My name is Amy Louise Ruffle. I'm an actor, comedian, podcaster, and most importantly, a proud Shake It Up Australia ambassador in support of my dad who lives with Parkinson's. My guest today is an Australian neurologist with international training in clinical neurology with a special interest in dystonia and other movement disorders. So, to talk to us about her work in the PD field and current research projects, please welcome to the podcast Callie Bertram. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, I'm looking at um, a gorgeous brain in the background, which is just setting the tone for this interview perfectly. So I'd love to, um, first of all, ask you how you came to be a specialist in movement disorders and Parkinson's disease. Has this always been an area of interest for you?
1: Throughout my medical training, I was predominantly interested in conditions in which the medicine really has to be quite personalised um, and the relationship that you develop with a patient is a really important part of your practice. Um, and neurology is very much like that, it's very much a clinically based specialty. Um, where you do have to spend quite a bit of time getting to know the patients um, and understanding their experience of the disease um, and working with them on potential solutions um, for the symptoms they're experiencing that may or may not be a certain amenable to treatments that are available at the moment. Um, it's a challenging area to work because a lot of the conditions are progressive um, and most of them at the moment we don't have curative treatments for. So whilst we have treatments that help many of the symptoms and improve, people's quality of lives they don't necessarily cure the condition which is obviously what most people want when they go to a doctor so um, it can be a challenging area in which to work but it can also be quite rewarding because you can do some quite um, good things to help people's quality of life and maintain their independence.
0: So it sounds like you're working both with patients individually and in the research space if I've got that correct what do you like about doing both of those things um, sort of concurrently?
1: Yeah, I guess it comes back to that that point that we don't have curative treatment for the diseases that we're mostly looking after. So even if you're providing great treatment for them at the moment, um, you're aware that their condition will change over time. And for many people, we do look after them for many years. I've been a... a neurologist for more than a decade and uh, over that time you watch lots of people uh, progressively change um, and have more challenges in their lives Um, and working in the research space allows you to start working on some of those bigger questions about how can we try and diagnose these conditions earlier? How can we try and bring some of the drugs that are being tested in the lab space into the clinic space and get early access to these sort of medications for patients? And how can we try and help the development of those clinical trials for the trial companies who've been developing these drugs but don't really have an understanding of the clinical space um, to make sure that the trials are going to meet the needs of the patients currently experiencing the condition?
0: So mentioning clinical trials, that's obviously a very important part of trying to one day hopefully find a cure for Parkinson's, but also in the treatment of it. For someone that is living with Parkinson's and might be looking at being part of a clinical trial, what, what is it? How do they work? I know it probably varies depending on the project, but is there sort of a general overview for someone that might be interested in being involved themselves?
1: Absolutely. I mean, the majority of clinical trials that we're doing at the moment are medication trials, but there are other types of trials sometimes as well, like exercise trials, for instance. But every medication that's out there in the market, from paracetamol all the way through to chemotherapy agents, have been through clinical trials. That's how they get tested to make sure we understand the safety of the medication, understand the dose that we need to actually achieve the outcome we want, and make sure that they actually work. So Clinical trials take the medications that are being developed and tested in labs, either with cells or computer systems or in mice, for instance, and actually trial them out in people with the human condition. So with brain disease in particular, it's extremely important because our brains are quite different to many other animals and we can't just test things on mice and say, look, it works in a mouse, therefore it will work in a person. We actually have to work out what dose we need. We're a very different size to a mouse. Our brain is quite protected um, from our bloodstream to protect us from getting infections and things. But it means that it can be difficult sometimes for medications to reach the brain in adequate quantities to actually have a clinical effect. And so even working out the dose sometimes requires a clinical trial. And then, of course, looking for whether it really achieves an outcome, not just actually reduces the level of something or alters the level of something, but does that have clinical meaning for the patient? Does it actually change their experience of the disease or not? It's nice to change a blood test, but that doesn't necessarily change the person's experience with the disease. So um, clinical trials mostly involve these medications being tested against a placebo so that we can see the true difference between being on the medication and not on the medication. And that takes into consideration a lot of the variabilities of the human experience. We all sleep differently. Uh, We all have other medical conditions. We're all different ages and have different diets um, and various other things that might influence how a medication works. And we're also all humans and we want our patients to get better. So uh, randomised clinical trials removes any bias from the assessment so that I don't know what drug the patient is on, whether they're on placebo or not, um, neither does the patient. So if they're reporting side effects, we think they might be related to the medication. We keep notes of those. That's why when you buy some paracetamol, there's that little sheet of paper in there with a million side effects, Um, and yet we all take it for a headache without thinking about it. But those side effects come from the clinical trials. And of course, we all sometimes have a headache or we all sometimes have a sore foot or something, and it may be unrelated to the medication. But we keep notes of all of those things throughout the, the, the clinical trial to see what the experience of people on and off the medication is. And then that allows us to then assess what the responsiveness to that drug is at the end of the trial. So, most clinical trials involve taking something fairly new that might have been tested on small numbers of of people. Um, There are clinical trials groups that do healthy people clinical trials for drugs that are brand new and they're uh, obviously done under very controlled circumstances. Um, We're mostly doing clinical trials in the disease space, in the movement disorder space, predominantly Parkinson's disease, atypical Parkinsonism, some other tremor disorders and some some other degenerative disorders like ataxic disorders. Um, And for these conditions, we usually have a medication that appears in the lab to be beneficial for the patient's um, medical condition, um, but has only been tested in small numbers of people with the condition. And so people sign up to a clinical trial, Um, They're then allocated randomly by a computer to either having the drug or not having the drug at whichever dose is being tested. Sometimes there's a few different doses within the one trial. So it might be a 50-50 chance of being on placebo or it might be different. It might be a 30% chance of being on placebo. And there's two different doses of the drug being tested, for instance. And then over the course of the clinical trial, which might be three months, six months or 12 months long, most of the ones in the Parkinson's space are six or 12 months long. Uh, you have a number of assessments for safety. Have you developed any new side effects? Is anything happening that might be concerning? And for effectiveness, so that we can see whether your disease appears to be different than it was at the beginning. And for most of these conditions, like Parkinson's, we do expect some deterioration over a 12-month period in most people's symptoms. So is there a big difference between the people on the medication and the people not on the medication in the degree of that that deterioration? Um, So if people stay stable over a 12-month period, that might be really encouraging. Uh, If they get better, obviously, that's fantastic. But if they get worse, it might still be that the drug is working um, because they might only get a tiny bit worse and people who are not on the drug get much worse, for instance. So, clinical trials run through uh, organisations like public hospitals that have got an ethics department that can review the clinical trial and make sure it's sensible and that there's a reasonable chance of outcome based on the science, but also that it's asking sensible and reasonable things of people in the trial. Um, People are usually not paid to do clinical trials, but nor should it cost them any money. The the cost of being involved in the trial, the medications, um, any tests they have to have done, um, anything like that is covered by the trial itself. Um, And they should be able to see a full... um, uh, we call patient consent form at the beginning of trial and have an opportunity to ask questions about their involvement and they have the opportunity to withdraw at any time if it's no longer a a suitable thing for them and i say that because sometimes they can be quite involved some trials involve people coming in every few weeks sometimes uh, people uh, might even stay overnight in the hospital for a couple of nights for a trial Um, or they might uh, only come in a few times over a 12-month period but there's very defined windows for when they will be coming in. Obviously, people have got lives and other things to do, um, and sometimes it doesn't suit them to be involved in in that level of commitment. Um, so it's important to think about those things when uh, determining if uh, a clinical trial is right for you, whether it fits with um, what else you're doing in life at the moment um, and with the, the level of disease you have, and whether the drug that's being tested seems to be something that um, – is genuinely recommended um, by uh, your doctor or your your neurologist um, or the clinical trialist as um, having good evidence behind it that it might um, genuinely improve your situation.
0: My dad has been involved in a few trials and you know, one of them involved him wearing a um a watch monitor at home. So, you know, he could just go about his his normal life, but he had to be wearing the watch for a week. Another one was when he would go and see his neurologist taking um sort of a test, different memory exercises and cognitive functional tests. So there are so many different types of clinical trials too, that like you said, have varying degrees of, I guess, time that you have to put into them and things like that. So it is, yeah, certainly not like, well, I certainly can't stay at hospital, so I won't do, any of them, they all do have different requirements.
1: Absolutely. And in fact, you know, there are times when we do clinical trials for very specific components of the disease. So, for instance, uh, we have in the past um, been involved in a clinical trial in people with Parkinson's disease, dementia, and there may be another one of those coming um, in 12 months or so to Australia. Um, So it's not even necessarily for just young healthy people Um, it is looking at medications that might help all different components of the disease so if people are interested in clinical trials it is worthwhile getting to know where they're done locally so that you can keep an eye on what's coming up or letting them know that you might be interested just letting them know you're interested doesn't commit you to doing the trial we always are calling people who have said they're interested in trials and they say look you know this one doesn't suit me or not at this time or i'm about to go to bali do that have a holiday it's more fun um (laughs) come back and see us afterwards because clinical trials carry on there's uh there's always going to be more of them so you shouldn't feel like you have to do something or you'll miss out um but it's a really important part of the the process of finding new medications for a condition so there are new drugs that come out of this um that, that become available um I probably can't talk much about a trial, a drug that's uh, not approved yet, but there is uh, likely to be one new, new treatment um, for more advanced Parkinson's disease um, approved in Australia in the next 12 months or so that we've been in, involved in the clinical trial for. And that's been very beneficial for some patients. Um, and there's a few groups around Australia who have done that. Um, so those individual patients have actually got early access to a treatment. It involved lots of time and energy from them, but it's improved the treatment of their condition significantly. That's how we find the new, um, the new trial, the new medications. So, um, you know, we we do need people in the community with the condition. Um, who were are interested to come forward to be a part of that uh, process um, because we aren't mice and things that work in the lab for mice just may not work for people and uh, we've certainly seen that in other areas of neurology over the years and it's, it's really important in the Parkinson's space that we have people coming through for clinical trials um, and that we can continue to attract those types of clinical trials to Australia um, so that we get the science done a bit quicker,
0: uh, we get the answers quicker but we also potentially get early access to treatments as they become available. Well, that is very exciting to hear that there is a potential new drug in the pipeline in the next 12 months. So we'll have to, once that is a bit more official, get you back on to talk all about that. But in the meantime, are you able to talk to us about what current research projects you're working on?
1: I can only officially tell you about the ones that have got official ethics approval. Uh, We're not allowed to advertise anything that doesn't have ethics approval, but there are some things coming. Uh, So there's a couple of larger Parkinson's trials coming, but I can't uh, give you much detail about those just yet. But keep uh, a look out. I expect uh, Shake It Up and uh, Parkinson's Australia and other groups will probably be aware of when those uh, trials are starting. Australian Parkinson's Mission is still doing some clinical trials in Australia at the moment um, and is open for recruitment in a number of sites across Australia. Some of the specific things that we're working on locally at the Alfred Hospital, we are doing a trial at the moment of an exercise machine called a Reviver, uh, which is quite fun, which is aiming to improve the strength and stability of core muscles in people who've got significant balance disturbance in Parkinson's disease. Um, So people who are a bit unsteady and falling a bit. This is a machine that helps with what's called passive exercise. That sounds like fun. But basically, it's like going to a fun park and they strap you onto a machine and spin you around just a little bit. They don't spin you upside down, I promise. Um, but it it enables the, um, the core muscles to be engaged in some exercise to help with your stability without the risk of falling over, which is potentially really helpful for people who, Um, have a lot of balance trouble and find it difficult to do independent exercise or get enough exercise from a physiotherapist or other sort of balance class, for instance. So those sort of exercise trials are being done uh, around various groups as well, because we know exercise is very important for Parkinson's disease. We're looking at refining what we know about the types of exercise that might be most beneficial to different types of of Parkinson's patients. So people at earlier stages and later stages of disease might really have quite different needs um, and capacity to engage in regular exercise. Um, So that kind of thing um, is open at the moment. We're doing some trials in some atypical Parkinsonian disorders. They are actually different diseases, but they look a bit like Parkinson's disease at the beginning and progress more rapidly. Um, So that's progressive supranuclear palsy and multiple system atrophy. Um, We have some clinical trials in that space at the moment and some Uh, we're developing a a registry of people with atypical Parkinsonism for some longer-term projects looking at disease progression. Um, That's been undertaken the last two years with um, a couple of research fellows. These are people towards the end of their neurology training uh, with us at the Alfred um, who have got a bit of extra time to spend on on these sort of projects um, and looking at imaging MRI scans and things um, in people with atypical Parkinsonism. Um, to see if we can measure disease progression that way more reliably. And the Movement Disorder Society of Australia and New Zealand, which is a group of movement disorders uh, neurologists predominantly across Australia and New Zealand, um, uh, are looking at setting up some Parkinson's biobanking to try and help facilitate some of the more basic science that's done in Australia. Um, There's a number of groups across Australia engaged in cell-based research or um, Uh, microbiome based research, um, looking at disease progression, but also at responsiveness to treatment in Parkinson's disease. And uh, a number of, uh, of groups are planning to collaborate a bit to try and help facilitate that research work. So we're hoping to have a a Parkinson's database set up over the next year or so to try and um, uh, measure people's disease more thoroughly and reliably in a way that is challenging to do in a a busy clinic, but where we are able to spend a bit more time with people and get a bit more information about the severity of their disease at that point in time um, and have people available uh, then to be contacted more readily for clinical trials involvement as well. So there's, there's a number of those sort of projects underway at the moment. Um, in terms of the Parkinson's disease clinical trials with new drugs, as I said, there's um, a couple coming that aren't quite um, through the ethics process yet. Um, it's a complex and slow process, um, but very important, obviously, to make sure that everything that's being asked of the patients is appropriate and that there's good systems set up to enable the information to be um, collaboratively shared in an appropriate way that protects people's privacy and and um, is uh, reliable but I expect to have a, a number of clinical trials in Parkinson's disease operating at the Alfred in the next two to three months.
0: Boy oh, there is a lot more details don't... about those. No it's a teaser <laughs> isn't it? Um, <laughs> yes but it's so exciting to hear that there are so many different studies going on, which must must be um, a lot for you to be having your brain across a, a million different projects, but very encouraging to know that there is such a varied amount of research being done in this space. Um, and also, given that you've been walk- working in this field for a decade, like you mentioned earlier, I was wondering if there's um, a, a discovery or finding from the last 10 years, either you, yourself personally or in the industry that really sticks out as um, being really memorable about um, how we treat Parkinson's.
1: In terms of new treatment options, really, in the last decade, there's been a lot of shift in how we use DBS, for instance, um, and the earlier availability of that to people with progressive disease, which I think has really improved a lot of um, people's quality of lives substantially, Um, the availability of... um, the levodopa, carbidopa, um, intestinal gel, the duodopa—again, um, significantly changed treatment options for people with more advanced disease. Um, and I expect a levodopa infusion product will be um, similarly life-changing for many people. And in terms of our understanding of the disease over the last decade, there's been a lot of small shifts. Some of them have been quite large, I guess, in the in the um, uh, in the scientific space, but they haven't really translated yet to Um, something new for patients experiencing the disease. I guess one of the things is that we've grown a better understanding of how the synuclein protein in Parkinson's disease spreads around the brain. And there was an expectation that that would lead us to uh, some kind of blocking treatment that would allow that synuclein to be removed. And unfortunately, all the clinical trials in that space Um, weren't effective and showed us that wasn't really a way forward for treatment of Parkinson's disease. sounds like a big failure, but it's actually really important because it means that we then shift our attention to a different strategy and say, okay, well, we can't you know, trying to block the sinuclein from spreading from one cell to another. In particular, there was a number of years um, with many, many trials looking at um, using the immune system to try and help with that and basically labeling the sinuclein as abnormal and asking the immune system to remove that. And it just didn't work. Um, it's also been a strategy that's been trialed in Alzheimer's disease and spectacularly didn't work. Um, and there's many similarities between the conditions. They are fundamentally different. The proteins are different. The parts of the brain involved are different. But the the, the metabolic processes behind how those proteins move has got quite a number of similarities. And again, it didn't work. Um, so, it, you know, it wasn't failed time. It uh, taught us lots about how clinical trials work, what outcomes are important, what outcomes possibly not as important as we thought. Um, It's got a lot more understanding of uh, the different components of the disease that we need to measure, but also very much shows us that that type of strategy isn't really uh, where we should be putting a lot more energy. So we should be looking at some other strategy for altering Parkinson's disease um, progression. And there's a number of other strategies um, being looked at at the moment with more cell-based biology, trying to understand how um, the cell functions in Parkinson's disease and not just focusing on the synuclein protein itself, which at the end of the day might actually just be a waste product effectively. Um, it might not be the actual cause of the disease. It might be just something we see accumulating people with the disease, but it may not be the actual problem. Um, and cleaning it up might not do very much to the patient's illness. Um, So looking at ways of uh, boosting um, cellular function um, to enhance um, brain activity um, might be a better strategy uh, going forward. There's a number of different groups looking at different types of strategies in that space. So should we be targeting mitochondria, um, which are the energy powerhouses of cells really and really important in brain disease? Um, Should we be targeting other metabolic pathways? should we be doing something else that enhances brain function um, and uh, of course everyone always is interested in whether or not we should have stem cells um, stem cells have been trialed and so far um, uh, haven't been found to be highly effective but uh, the technology has shifted a lot and um uh, the most important thing now is trying to get stem cells that appear to be safe, which um, they're much safer than they were 20 years ago when it was first suggested, um, and uh, then trying to get them in the right place and get them to survive, um, develop their own blood supply and, and interact with others, um, because that would be a way forward for that that field. Um, so there's still some work to be done in that space. Um, and again, there may be stem cell trials. Um, coming to Australia next year. Um, much riskier trials than um, uh, taking a new medication um, because it involves having uh, a brain procedure um, but for the right person that might be a good, um, good strategy. So um, there, there's a lot of things that have shifted in the last 10 years in our understanding about the disease. Um, our treatments uh, in some respects are still fairly similar, although we do have some better treatments for more advanced patients. Um, and the, the other thing that uh, clinical research based on looking at patients in your clinic and understanding their experience of disease, that type of um, clinical research that various groups are doing around the world, has also focused a lot more attention on some of the um, uh, other symptoms of the disease, if you like, you know, most of the medications we talk about as Parkinson's disease medications focus on uh, dopamine delivery and are uh, really heavily focused on movement. But as many people with Parkinson's know, that's a small part of the disease, very important part of the disease, but it's not the only symptom they have. Um, and there's more emphasis now on sleep dysfunction and pain Um, and understanding some of those pathways. Um, The treatment of of anxiety and depression is probably much better than it was a decade ago. The drugs themselves are probably the same, actually. We're just using them better. Um, And uh, people are asking more in clinic about some of these other symptoms and working out strategies to help their patients. So the overall treatment has shifted a bit, even though we haven't necessarily got more drugs, based on, some of the clinical research that's being done um, as well as that lab based sort of approach to um, finding new pathways to to target for, for disease modification trials.
0: Well, I'm very glad that you're one of the people that is at the forefront of this and asking those questions because they're very complex and varied things to be dealing with. So glad to hear that there is such a strong team pushing for better treatment, better understanding, all of that stuff moving forward. Final question before I let you go back to doing this important work. Um, If someone wants to be involved in the trials you're doing at the Alfred, where do they go to find out more about that?
1: Yeah, so we have a clinical trials group at the Alfred um, and you can contact uh, the clinical trials neuroscience group directly via email um, uh, or um, get in touch with, uh, with the unit. Um, the movement disorders group has a specific movement disorders email uh, which is movement disorders at alfred.org.au um, uh, for our clinical patients as well as our clinical trials patients. And I guess the main thing is um, letting us know you're interested um, uh, because uh, then we can contact you when something becomes available and say, look, you do or don't seem to meet the criteria for this. Um, and that's always one of the challenges that every um, clinical trial comes with a long list of clinical. T- criteria depending on the type of patient that the, the sponsor who owns the drug is looking for and wanting to test. We have some input to how that is run, but not always. So sometimes people are going to be excluded from clinical trials because of other um, clinical conditions they have or because of the nature of the their trial. Um, but if we know people are interested, then we can offer things to them and see if it suits them at the time. Um, bringing it up with um, with your treating neurologist can also be valuable because they often are aware of whether their group, wherever they work, or one of their colleagues is involved in clinical trials. Um, And again, they often will pass on your contact details if you wish um, to be contacted about the, the potential trials that are coming up.
0: Incredible. Well, thank you so much, Callie, for your time today. And we can't wait to hear about what those um, new things might be that you've teased throughout the episode. But otherwise, uh, best of luck with the projects uh, that you're working on in the next six to 12 months.
1: No worries at all. Thanks for the interest.
0: Thanks for listening to today's episode. Shake It Up Australia funds groundbreaking Australian research that aims to slow, stop and cure Parkinson's disease. And they need your help. To support Shake It Up's vision of a world without Parkinson's, head to shakeitup.org.au forward slash podcast. Together, we can find a cure.